We're so excited to welcome you all to the Sugar Free Show with your hosts, Karen Thompson and Emily Maguire. Each episode, we aim to bring you expert interviews and content that will give you the tools to empower you in making the best choices for your health and well-being. Not only look at what you feed your body, but also your mind and soul whilst adding in a whole host of fun and laughter. And always remember that together we can do what we cannot do alone. So on that note, it's time to come and hang out with us. Hi everyone and welcome to the Sugar Free Show with myself Karen Thompson and nutritionist Emily Maguire. Today we have one of my absolute favorite people, Gary Tiles, with us. Um, and if you don't know, he's an award-winning science and health journalist, best-selling author of Good Calories, Bad Calories and Why We Get Fat. His latest book, The Case Against Sugar, is a groundbreaking, eye-opening expose that makes the convincing case that sugar is the tobacco of the new millennium, backed by powerful lobbies entrenched in our lives and making us very sick. Welcome, Gary. We're so excited to have you. Well, thank you, guys. It's great to be talking to you countries. Fabulous. So can we start off by just um, getting some of the thinking behind where the book came from and what it's all about? Okay, well, it's pretty simple. You know, my earlier books, I had... Um, I made this argument that refined grains and sugars are the sort of fundamental problems in modern diets, and they work through a variety of mechanisms. And every time I lectured about this or got criticized, people would say, well, what about Southeast Asia? Here's a nation where they do consume a lot of refined grains, and at least until recently, they didn't have obesity or diabetes. It's certainly not anything close to the level that we have in the West. So this was clearly a good point and not one I hadn't considered, but I thought I would examine it further. And the deeper you dig, the more the sort of fundamental role of sugar, uh, by sugar, I mean like sucrose, the white stuff we put in our coffee and high fructose corn syrup, and the role that that plays in, in obesity, diabetes, and particularly this condition called insulin resistance, which underlies both of them. So I thought it was time that somebody wrote a book about that, and I was lucky enough to get funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to do that, and the case against sugar is the result. And I pretty much, there's been so much misunderstanding and so much confusion and so much unscientific thinking that I wanted to, you know, even though I'm a journalist, I wanted to take the opportunity to try and set the record straight what the basis of the arguments should be. So, as I say in the, I'll just finish one second. As I say in the book, this is like the, if this were a criminal case and you wanted to understand why we have these epidemics of obesity and diabetes all over the world, this is the case for the prosecution and why we should be blaming, or at least sugar should be our prime suspect. Yeah, I absolutely um, love that part in the book and I like the premise of it for um, <laughs> the title of the case against sugar. Um, but just to back up, just to kind of set the scene for it all. So you were saying that you were, you know, criticized with regards to the, the difference in carbohydrate, etc. So when we're talking about sugar, what are you actually talking about? What, what <laughs> is sugar? <laughs> and this is this is a really good point. I mean, it's funny, I've already gotten criticized for writing a book that's not as simple and 
narrative as some people would like. And one of the reasons why is because you have to keep on backing up to clarify things. So as far back as, say, 15 years ago, you could find people who didn't really, like experts, epidemiologists and public health authorities who literally didn't know what they were talking about when they were talking about sugar. And so when, we're, when I'm talking about sugar, you know, it gets so confusing because we have blood sugar, which is glucose, and the sugar in most, all carbohydrates are to some extent, you know, sugars. Um, when we're talking about sugar, we mean sugars that are roughly half glucose and half fructose. And fructose is a simple sugar and it's the sweetest of the sugars, so it's what makes sugar sweet and it's what makes fruits sweet. There's a little bit of uh, fructose and sucrose, which is glucose and fructose in all sweets. I mean, all fruits, and that's why they taste sweet to us. So that's what we're talking about. The two primary sugars in modern diets today are sucrose. That's when we talk about beet sugar and cane sugar, and that you know dates back a few thousand years. It's been refined. And then the beginning in the mid to late 1970s, we started putting what's called high fructose corn syrup into our food supply, and it kind of took over the beverage industry by the mid 80s and that's again roughly 50 percent fructose 50 percent glucose and what makes these unique is that we metabolize the fructose primarily in our liver so nutritionists like to say a calorie is a calorie obesity researchers like to say a calorie is a calorie that's like a mantra and it means it doesn't matter where you get your calories you have to eat too much of any of them to get fat and a calorie of broccoli is you know, no better nor worse than a calorie of sugar or a calorie of kumquats. And the truth is these sugars all get metabolized differently. And it's a bit inane to think that a calorie should be a calorie because our body does something, responds differently to all these different sugars. And fructose, because we consume so much, but again, seems to be a prime suspect here. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, your your book, and, and same with Good Calories, Bad Calories, takes us through the amazing kind of history of where we kind of were, were to where we are now. So can you, in kind of a brief synopsis, I don't know if this is going to be too possible, but can it take us through where the history of sugar has come from up to kind of how accepted it is in today's society? Okay, so yeah, it's funny. I have a chapter in the new book that I think is the, the first 10,000 years of brief history. <laughs> and so sugar comes out of Indonesia like 6,000 years ago, and it, it, it slowly makes its way to India and China, where we start, the farmers start refining sort of cane sugar or sugar cane, the plant, into refined sugar. That's about 2,000 to 2,500 years ago in India, and it slowly makes its way east to the Mediterranean. Um, by a thousand years ago, there are viable sugar industries all around the Mediterranean, and then with the New World, um, actually Columbus takes stops on his way to the New World to pick up sugar refiners and sugarcane, and so he could plant it in the New World, and the first sugarcane industry and starts in Brazil when Columbus's pilot goes to Brazil and launches and starts planting sugarcane, they refine sugar. Um, and from there, just 
slowly and then faster and faster and faster begins to take over the world in modern diets. And it does so, it's like there are a lot of what are called drug foods or drugs that came out of the new world and kind of took over commerce in the 17th, 18th century. So did coffee, chocolate, uh, sugar, alcohol, rum, which comes from sugar. And by the mid, with the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, um, and it gets very cheap to refine sugar, and then the Europeans finally master getting sugar from beets, from sugar beets, and suddenly it's like it just explodes. And from the 1850s onward, it just saturates her diets in every possible way. And you see the invention of the, the candy industry and the chocolate industry and the ice cream industry and the soft drink industry. And then um, the, the funny sugary cereals come around about 50 years later because the cereal industry had its, um, its origins in the health food movement. So they had nutritionists who thought sugar was evil and they kind of delayed the inevitable for 50 years. And then uh, post cereals released the first sugar coated cereal and suddenly everyone else had to get into the business or compete. Um, so by 1960s, it's like there's this complete transformation of diet where dessert has become sort of this thinly veiled low fat. I mean, breakfast is now like kind of a variation on dessert you know, lower fat, but just massive doses of sugar. And all of these industries are targeting children and women, basically. Like men had alcohol and cigarettes, and kids and women had sugar. And, you know, often when we do studies on this stuff, it's fascinating. You, know, you do the studies in adults, right? I mean, it's like college kids or adults. But what we did is we started feeding again, women's sugar, so that when they got pregnant, whatever the effects of metabolizing this massive amounts of sugar is, it would be trans, um, might be, you know, uh, transferred to the children while they're pregnant, and then we're suddenly kids are eating sugar in a way that this species never saw before. And, you know, lo and behold, like 20, 30 years later, you've got these massive epidemics of obesity and diabetes, and the question is, why are we blaming anything other than sugar at the moment? Yeah, and of course I... Sorry, Gary, keep going. <laughs> no, I can talk forever, you go. <laughs> um, I was just gonna say, why do you think there was such a free pass on sugar given? Why is it being allowed to get to where it is? Well, part of it was this sort of, um, I mean, a, a large part of it was when people really started implicating sugar and disease. Well, they, we had a lot of misconceptions you know, you know, all my work is kind of a critique of the nutrition science of the past 150 years. So the first misconception, the first disease people really link to sugar in some kind of concerted way is diabetes. And this starts 100 years ago when diabetes rates start climbing. Like Mid-19th century, you can barely find a diabetic in hospitals, even though this is a horrible disease without insulin. As diabetes rates start climbing, people say, hey, it's climbing in coincidence with sugar consumption. It's clearly a carbohydrate intolerance problem. We should blame sugar. And the problem is most diabetics, type 2 diabetes is associated with obesity. And so the diabetes researchers in the 1920s said, well, it's associated with obesity. We believe obesity causes it viable hypothesis, therefore we're going to blame it all on gluttony and sloth. And they just sort of argued louder <clears throat> and there were more 
I don't know why. I mean, for whatever reason, that argument caught on, and the idea that sugar was to, to blame faded away. The 1960s researchers started identifying all the ways sugar could cause diabetes. But now we have this theory that fat causes heart disease, which comes out of the 1950s and is being pushed by these very zealous proponents of their, their, you know, a lot of scientists have this problem that they have a good hypothesis, and then they convince themselves that God basically told them that this is true. And it's got to be true, and it doesn't matter that we haven't done the tests yet. So this dietary fat hypothesis, the problem is, Heart disease is also associated with obesity and it's associated with diabetes. So you can't blame obesity and diabetes maybe on sugar and carbs and blame heart disease on fat. That's not a very parsimonious notion. So you end up blaming everything on fat because those researchers were more politically corrected and it was a more sort of politically acceptable hypothesis. So by the 1970s, the sugar hypothesis is being pushed by these British nutritionists, and they just kind of get voted down. And then in the process, the sugar industry comes along and says, these people are attacking us. And the really good nutritionists think the problem is fat, not sugar. So we're going to agree with them. And it's true, most of the nutritionists thought the problem was fat. So they throw their influence and their money into kind of hiring these really good, quote, really good nutritionists, and they combine sort of kill the sugar theory. And yeah, the sugar theory was, in my impression, far more likely to be right. But we've been living with the consequences ever since. And what, when you're, because obviously with, again, the case against sugar, I mean, what kind of data was around then? Was there even anything to back up either a suppose size of the claims. Well, you had all, I mean, you had epidemiology. So you had this observation that whenever you added something in the Western, whenever populations throughout the world became um, Westernized, so they start trading with the West and they start eating Western diets, they start getting obese and diabetic. So again, it's interesting because the British researchers, you know, the British Empire had missionary and colonial physicians all around the world. So they would come all around the world. They were saying, we see the same thing. doesn't matter what the population we're administering to, whether they're sort of pastoral populations in Kenya or, you know, in the Inuit populations in Northern Canada or South Pacific Islanders or Asians, wherever you start eating Western diets, you start getting these diseases. So they thought sugar, white flour, because that's what was common to Western diets when they spread all around the world. In the U.S., you had people looking at Americans, right? And they said, well, Americans eat high-fat diets, therefore we're going to worry about fat. Um, so you had that kind of observational evidence. And then you had these laboratory studies that were done on animals and college students where you give them, you know, high-fat diets and look at their cholesterol, or you give them high carb diets and look at their cholesterol and look at their triglycerides and their blood sugar. And clearly when you gave animals and humans high sugar diets, you saw in a significant number of them, not all of them, their lipids went crazy, okay, for lack of a technical term. But if you thought fat was a problem, you would say, well, hey, you know, look, it doesn't happen to everyone. 
So the evidence is ambivalent and we're going to ignore it. And if you thought sugar was a problem, you said, well, it's going to happen to some people. So that was kind of the level of evidence. And it depended, you know, what your bias was, how you interpreted it. And like I said, the people who thought fat was the problem just won the kind of consensus game in the 1970s. And then it wasn't until the 1990s that research kind of kicked up again because it was clear that if you give sugar to animals and humans, you can cause what's called metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance, which is you know, today considered sort of the primary risk factor for obesity, diabetes, heart disease. But back then we thought, oh, it's just LDL cholesterol. It's a very long, complicated story. And if you don't know all the pieces, if you can't keep all the pieces in your head, it's hard to understand how we got here. And even I forget some of the pieces, despite having written three books about it. <laughs> I mean, one of the big things that, that's, you know, constantly in the media and everything is the, the concept of sugar actually being addictive. Um, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, the, um, I mean, if you have children, I don't think you need a lot of science to tell you whether it's addictive. That's a very unscientific, unjournalistic response. Let's just put it this way. The first chapter of my book is called Food or Drug, Drug or Food, I forget which. Um, and I wanted to put it in the first chapter because even before I get into the history about how sugar is traveling around the world, I want people to be asking themselves, is this, you know, is this what a drug is doing or what a food is doing? So I want to first discuss this possibility that food is addictive. And I write about 4,000 words. I finally have been struggling to write the book for years. I finally get a 4,000-word chapter written. And it talks about the evidence. And there's not a lot that it's addictive because nobody bothered to study this. You know, you think over the years, surely people would have studied this. But sugar was out of fashion. If you accused, if you thought sugar was bad for you, you were considered a quack. So with the exception of like one research group at Princeton and a French research group and maybe a couple others, nobody was looking into this. And the French, for instance, they, they've done these studies where they first you addict you can't do these in kids, right? Because it's not exactly ethical. But first you addict rats or mice to cocaine or heroin. And then they could, you let them self-administer it. So every day they can give themselves, it's called a bolus of heroin or cocaine. And then you suddenly, you give them the opportunity to take sugar instead. And they have a few days where they can get a choice and eventually they have to choose one or the other. And all these animals will choose sugar over cocaine. In like two days, they're locked into sugar. They don't care about coke anymore. Um, heroin takes a little longer. So you can at least say, look, it's pretty clear that this stuff's addictive to rats and mice. We still don't know if that applies to humans. And then there's all this other evidence that, you know, alcoholics for, you know, centuries have used sugar to wean themselves off alcohol. The big book, the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous even recommends using sugar for this purpose. So I write this chapter discussing all of this. And then I have a friend named Charles Mann, who's a wonderful journalist and historian. Um, his nickname is Cam. And Cam has written a book called 1493, which is about how um, foods and plants spread around the world after Columbus. And Cam is a beautiful writer. I mean, he's such a beautiful writer that I don't like to read his books because they depress me. <laughs> but I realize that he has a 
large history of sugar, because sugar is one of these foods that spread around the world after Columbus. And I'm reading Cam's book, and in, he's got a parenthetical where he says in 17 words, uh, scientists debate amongst themselves whether sugar is an addictive substance or people just act like it is. And I think in 17 words, Cam has captured everything I was trying to say in 4,000. And if I was a really good journalist, I'd throw out that first chapter. <laughs> Instead, because it was the only progress I had made, I just quote Cam several different times. It almost doesn't matter what science finds. I mean, people act like this stuff's addictive. I mean, the issue is it's everywhere. It so saturates our market that if you, our food supply, that it's virtually impossible to quit it without simply never eating packaged or processed foods. So most of us will go our, you know, can go years, we could swear we're gonna give up sugar and then you never do because you're constantly eating foods in which sugar is an additive or high fructose corn syrup. But, you know, clearly for many people, this, they know it's bad for them, which is one of the sort of psychological definitions of of addiction. So you know this activity is bad for you and they can't quit it. I get emails from people all the time saying basically help me. What advice do you have? And I don't know what to say. You can just send them to us. Yes. Yeah. Next next time I will send them to you. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Um so you know the correlation with the tobacco industry and with tobacco, you you do delve into that in the book. Um and actually I read some stuff there that I had never knew before. Um what is your take on that? Um, it's a fascinating story. It's funny. There's a famous book on sugar that was written in the 70s by a guy named William Dufty, Gloria Vanderbilt's husband, called Sugar Blues. And he had mentioned this in his book, that the tobacco industry basically increases the amount of sugar in the tobacco leaves to increase the addictive power of the leaves. And I had never been able to confirm that. I just couldn't do it. And I had tried over the years, because it's a great story, and I'm a journalist, and I like great stories. Um, about uh, seven or eight years ago, I began working with this uh, woman named Kristen Kearns, who was a dentist who started investigating the sugar industry and found this cache of sugar industry documents in a, the archives of a defunct sugar manifest, sugar refining company. And in those archives was this 1951 report by the Sugar Association about the link between sugar and tobacco. So post-World War II, the sugar industry was actually worried because everyone's saying sugar's fattening and they thought people are clearly not gonna keep eating their sugars. So we have to figure out a way to, we have to diversify our product. So any other way we can use sugar is good. And at the time, they didn't know that they, it was a bad idea to be proud of the fact that they were selling massive amounts of sugar to the tobacco industry. Um, but it turns out they were. And then you, once I found that document, you could find other places to confirm it. So turns out the great um, technological revolution in the tobacco industry of the late 19th century was something called flu-curing tobacco. And what flu-curing does, aside from drying the leaves, is it maximizes, it increases the sugar content of the tobacco leaves. So tobacco that has about 3% sugar in it ends up after being flu-cured with about 22% sugar in it. This is called Burley tobacco, Virginia tobacco. And this tobacco 
the higher the sugar content, the easier it is to inhale the smoke. It's more acidic, so you could dry it, um, draw it into your lungs without spurring this coughing mechanism. Um, the problem is with the high sugar content in the leaves, naturally you get a lower nicotine content. So you can draw it into your lungs, but you can't really, it's not as addictive because you don't have as much nicotine. So in 1913, with the uh, disassociation of something called the Tobacco Trust, R.J. Reynolds, which was a uh, company that mostly produced chewing tobacco, decides to make the first American blended cigarette, which is Camel. And what they do is they blend this Virginia, flu-cured Virginia tobacco with its high nicotine content with chewing tobacco, which is actually marinated in what's called a sugar sauce. So it's sugar and maple syrup and licorice. And that too has a high sugar content because you marinate it and it's got a high nicotine content. So now you have a tobacco, I don't even know if they knew about this at the nicotine cone, but now you have a tobacco that you could draw into your lungs, you can inhale easily, is very smooth and has a high nicotine content. So not only is it very addictive, and sugar cigarette sales just shoot up and take off with Camel. And by the 1930s, every American cigarette manufacturer is producing these blended cigarettes, and they take over the world. But you've now got this vehicle for getting both the nicotine into your lungs, where it's highly addictive, and getting the carcinogens from the tobacco smoke into your lungs, where they could create lung cancer. So the lung cancer rates also start turning upward. It's, lung cancer is an excruciatingly rare disease until 1913. And then suddenly it starts showing up in the mortality records and it just you know skyrockets until we have this lung cancer epidemic all around the world that by the 1960s is finally linked to cigarettes. Without sugar, and without the sugar in the leaves, you don't get the addictive cigarettes. I mean, people would still smoke. You're not gonna get kids hooked nearly as easily and you're not going to get the lung cancer rates because you can't get carcinogens into your lungs. I mean, it's an amazing story and it's funny, it didn't really fit in the book, okay, because that's, I'm talking about obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, but when I came upon this, I thought, how could I leave it out? And at one point, yeah, at one point I had the chapter was chapter two and a half, like that. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie uh, Making John Malcolm. Making John yeah. Malkovich. <gasps> yes. With the John Malkovich. Being floor. John Malkovich. Yeah, being John Malkovich. Yeah. So that's that's what I was thinking. It was, you know, the, the second I could I'm gonna put it in the book even if it doesn't really fit with the rest of the story I'm telling. <laughs> that really so, stood out for me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I yeah, I mean, so where where do you think that we are today though? Do you think that because there's now this terminology of, you know, sugar is the new tobacco, do you think it's kind of having its day or do you still think we've got a long way to go with it? Um, I think people are really getting away. I think we're winning the sugar war. I mean, there's two issues and some people who are kind of on our side in the basic dietary debate are not gonna like this book because they're gonna say I'm putting too much focus on sugar. When if you're obese or diabetic or predisposed, you wanna maybe get rid of all carbs <laughs> and or most carbs, easily digestible carbs, I agree with them. But I think we're winning the sugar war. I think the industry knows that they see the writing on the wall and they don't wanna cause disease. This is, I mean, you know, the people, 
are always acting in a way that they can think the best of themselves. So most people, virtually all people. Um, so I think the industry sees the writing on the wall. I think they're going to delay the inevitable as late as they can, as far as they can, so they could diversify into other products. And you can see that clearly happening with PepsiCo and Coca-Cola. Um, a lot of industries are trying to do the right thing. They want to know what's the maximum level of sugar they can put in their products without you know, causing unnecessary harm. I don't know if there is such a level, but if, you know. So I think we're winning. I think it's gonna take 20 years to, you know, slowly roll back. But I think with each year that goes by and all the efforts to uh, in, institute sugar taxes um, will help. There's clearly the health organizations are on board. The World Health Organization is definitely gets i mean they, they still like to talk about sugar as empty calories which is kind of naive but um but they get what the problem is and they're going after it so i think we're winning um and i think the industry knows they're losing and isn't going to fight that hard i don't think it's going to be a situation like tobacco was mm -hmm. um despite some of the tactics and strategies until up till now being similar but I may also be Pollyanna. Thank you guys for tuning in to part one of our interview with Gary Tobes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where you can get access to part two and the concluding part to this interview. The Sugar Free Show podcast is sponsored by the Sugar Free Reset Guide. If you're looking at trying to give up sugar, to lose weight, improve your skin or have a greater amount of vitality, the Sugar Free Reset Guide is a tool that can help you with this. Packed with e-guides, meal plans, recipes, eating out lists and worksheets, it gives a detailed step-by-step -step approach on how to quit sugar for 30 days and beyond. Now you can challenge yourself anytime, any month to quit sugar. Head on over to thesugarfreerevolution.com where you can get a downloadable copy of the Sugar Free Reset Guide. It's time to see what quitting sugar can do for your body and your health.